Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and our exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm joined this week again with Dr. Smith uh, to discuss the classical text of the Republic, uh, written by Plato. And uh, it is probably one of the most famous, uh, not just historical books, but uh, philosophical books as well. Uh, that we get that really shapes some of the very beginning of philosophical thought that we have. And uh, Plato, again, was writing around the year uh, 380 BC with this book. Uh, and uh, Dr. Smith, why don't you get us started? Give us a little background about the book itself, maybe a little bit more about Plato and uh, the structure of the book and uh, kind of what its overall theme is. Sure, Jason. Uh, just uh, to begin, one thing I, I want to say is uh, we thought it would be a good idea to to begin looking at some of the, uh, you know, the central uh, text sources, uh, problems and questions that um, come up in philosophy and theology, both historically uh, as well as in uh, more contemporary thought. Um, you know, we're here to to help people uh, in their um, formation in philosophy and theology. Uh, to really start a discussion in that. And so uh, bringing in these, you know, central problems, these central themes and sources um, is a good way to, to do that, to sort of involve people in the conversation. The Republic is, uh, without a doubt, uh, I would say, um, one of the most, if not the most, influential texts in the history of philosophy. If I was to say, uh, choose one book um, for you to read in philosophy, I would say it would be The Republic. Uh, that's not because I think it's the most accurate or the most true, but because it really raises all of the most important questions as a complete book in philosophy. Um, it raises them really at a profound level. Uh, of course, um, it is written in a dialogue form. Uh, these are called the platonic. It's one of the platonic dialogues. It's a very long dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, ever uh, seen a copy of it? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, in a dialogue form, one of the things that's interesting is that, that Plato had an eye for drama, like a lot of Greek thinkers and writers. And, um, and so he puts that dialogue form to give you some sort of dramatic uh, feel to it, some dramatic pace to it. So you have people with characters and personalities, and those personalities actually kind of come out in the, the dialogue itself. The main, uh, of course, protagonist uh, in these dialogues is Socrates. Um, uh, we don't have anything that Socrates wrote himself. Uh, our primary sources for thinking about, knowing about uh, Socrates come from Plato and Xenophon, um, but more Plato uh, than Xenophon. But what's really important here is the, the of course, is the thought itself. Um, this thought was, th this was written, you know, in the, the classical period or just as the classical period was starting to draw towards an end. Uh, I believe, I'd have to check uh, to be sure about this, but um, at this point, uh, Athens is either uh, has either lost or is losing the Peloponnesian Wars uh, against um, uh, the, Spar uh, the Spartan um, uh, sort of federation. Um, so that's sort of the, the historical setting. Um, as I say, this text is enormously influential uh, on Western thought, especially, but even on uh, say um, uh, within Islamic philosophy. Yeah, and I think it's important to you know for for our listeners out there. Uh, these uh, these dialogues are there. Uh, if you've ever read any philosophy, these are some of the. Uh, I don't want to say just the easiest kind of way to absorb philosophy, but 
Um, but it's some of the most enjoyable uh, philosophical reading, especially if you've ever tried to read somebody like Kant or something like that. Sure. You, go, yeah. you go to Plato's dialogue <laughs> right. for like a source yes. of relief. Right. In terms of, of, of style, yeah. you know, uh, there are probably only two great philosophers historically that you read for style. Uh, and that would be, um, uh, by great, I mean influential and insightful, yeah. not necessarily true, <clears throat> but um, would be Plato and, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, yeah. uh, Friedrich Nietzsche is wildly wrong about things, but, but boy, <laughs> he has style. Yeah. <laughs> he knows how to turn a phrase. Uh, for sure. Oh yeah. So the, let's, let's hop into the Republic then. And sure. um, so what is kind of the main overall thrust of the public? What is Socrates uh, as a character in the, in the, as the protagonist, what is he trying to get at in his conversations here? So um, uh, one, uh, the, the central question, and this I think is really pretty fascinating. Um, uh, it's a really great example of philosophical thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, the central um, question here is uh, whether it is desirable and good to live uh, a just life or an unjust life. Now, most of the time when we talk about our, uh, justice, we assume that justice is a good thing, that justice mm -hmm. is something we should pursue and, des uh, and desire. But Plato doesn't start with that assumption. He actually uh, uh, brings up the, the possibility uh, that, um, that, that living justly is undesirable, uh, not something to be pursued. Now, of course, Plato doesn't believe that, but he brings up the possibility and wants to address it. Of course, as this is written in a dialogue form, so he has one of the interlocutors, one of the, uh, the characters, so to speak, um, named Glaucon, um, bring this, this theory in, that is the, the hypothesis or the thesis, that it's more desirable to live unjustly uh, than to live uh, justly. Um, of course, Socrates is going to argue against this, but Glaucon's going to actually offer a pretty compelling case, uh, a sort of disturbingly compelling case for uh, why we should not live justly, why it's, it's better to pursue injustice. In, his, in, in philosophy, we call this uh, immoralism. Mm -hmm. uh, and it comes up from time to time. That is the claim that it's more desirable uh, to live um, a vicious life or an unjust life than to live justly. Um, Nietzsche um, uh, defends this kind of thesis, uh, as does uh, Machiavelli. Um, uh, so uh, th that's the central question. Now, there's a lot that kind of flows out of that. I mean, it's amazing, right? You just start with this one question, and, and from that you get a whole interpretation of justice, of politics, of the human soul, of knowledge, and of uh, the structure of reality. Yeah. So it, it's an amazing uh, text in that way. And that's also why it's in uh, uh, so long as well. I mean, it's, sure. like, <laughs> that's right, right. I mean, it's just, you know, and he even calls them books. So, I mean, you go from, you have, you know, what, what is it? 10, 11 books. 10 books. That's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's 10, 10 books, but, uh, uh, but you know, and I think it's one of those things also, I mean, it's a, it, it's a, the, the, the question of justice, um, you know, even if we're, uh, I think, honest with ourselves, we, mm. you know, uh, a lot of times our knee-jerk reaction is, yes, we want a just society. Yes, we want a just society until we're the one that's actually guilty of something. Right, you know? sure. and, and then, you know, then come the, uh, 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 the cries for mercy and the cry, you know, 
uh, the mm -hmm. cries for leniency and all these things. Like, sure. but it's a, you know, so I mean, it is, a, it, it, I think it is a good, a, uh, not just for the Republic, but even for the, the human person to think about that mm -hmm. uh, in themselves to, uh, to think about, you know, is the, you know, am I deserving of justice, you know, what would, what would that, what would that actually look like? <laughs> do, do I really want, you know, and so, I mean, when you're talking, when you're reading about somebody that's making an argument for an unjust society, you're like, well, you know, if, if I'm on the receiving end of that, well, maybe, yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> it sure, doesn't sure. sound so bad. Um, sure. yeah, but, yeah. The, but the idea of justice, again, it is that found uh, fundamental uh, uh, subject when you're talking about, you know, the, the organization of uh, society or the organization of uh, how a political, uh, a, a, um, a particular community is going to live and so sure. it really you know and even in you know he draws this out in there about even the structure of of a society that it really does that justice plays such a foundational point uh from the beginning yeah absolutely yeah uh so um uh yeah it, it opens up lots of questions lots of uh different perspectives and uh lines of argument to pursue Glaucon's case uh, for immoralism, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think is really instructive and um, it brings up some great questions. So um, uh, basically his argument is, and this is just the opposite of, of what we anticipate so often, right? Um, his argument is that you will be happier. You will live a more satisfied life if you live unjustly, right? Than whether it, than, than living justly, right? So that you're going to have more pleasure more satisfaction and more happiness understood in those terms if you uh, ignore justice. Now, he does think that you need to be clever about this. Uh, so you might, you might want to sort of have a reputation for justice. And interestingly, Machiavellius is the same thing. Um, but, um, but, it, but in fact, be unjust. So it's almost sort of the villain's perspective, right? Sure. And, uh, and Glaucon does a very fine job of um, um, explaining it uh, um, and defending it. Now, why is this the case? I think what's really interesting is he has an idea that I think is, wor is really worth thinking about and that Socrates, interestingly, does not reject. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, his view uh, of human nature. Uh, Glaucon believes that our fundamental drive is what's, uh, is what's called in Greek, pleonexian. What that is, is it's a desire for more and more and more uh, along with the desire to have more than your neighbor, right? So it combines a kind of competitiveness with kind of um, greed, but greed in a broad sense, the kind of greed that includes certainly more and more wealth, but more and more sex, more and more pleasure, more and more satisfaction, more and more power, more and more um, fame and reputation. So uh, I think it's, uh, uh, it's an interesting view of human beings and then also that we want to have more than our neighbor, right? And that we feel dissatisfied when our neighbor is more satisfied than us, right? So it's a kind of grim view uh, of, of human nature, but, 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 but frankly, one that uh, kind of rings a little bit true. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you were reading the newspaper just now. But, uh... <laughs> right, you know, because it's because it is an event like, hmm, I can see how someone would think this way. Yeah, well, and, and especially when, uh, you know, you get into, uh, you know, uh, keep the, uh, you know, consumerism, keeping up with the Joneses, sure. that kind of, you know, that kind of uh, thing, you get into kind of this uh, uh, class system where you where you try to, to, to make it 
and again, and it's not just a, a money thing. It's not just a greed thing. But you know, when the the power really gets in there, uh, sure. yeah, it, it, it is money. But it's 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 more than that, right? Yeah, it's money. It's power. It's sex. It's fame. It's all those things. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it seems like yeah, there's something to it. And one thing, uh, so when I teach this in a, a you know, traditional or standard class, you know, I, we spend a good bit of time talking about it. Um, and the students find it very intriguing, like to, because we hear all the time about human being, how great human beings are, and how everybody is really nice and wonderful on the inside, and there's only a couple <laughs> of bad people, like Adolf Hitler. Um, but really, they, they they know better than that, right? They're not that naive. Um, yeah. And the ancients speak were not. Way, but we know that human history. Yeah, the ancients were yeah, not that naive right. as well. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so, in a lot of ways, in an interesting way, the Republic is is a whole in a lot of ways revolves around the problem of how do you deal with desire and competition, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think that's a good way of, of thinking about the Republic, uh, both in politics, also in the soul, uh, also in your relationships, but how do you tame, how do you temper, right? This desire for satisfaction uh, and this uh, desire to compete. Um, and uh, so if, you, if, if uh, one other thing about that strikes me is that, um, you know, this is a kind of a, a pagan anticipation of the Christian doctrine of original sin, right? And I think that, yeah. uh, and students occasionally bring that up, you know, that, that really, you know, I mean, um, in a sense, Glaucon do, doesn't have anything on Augustine on this point. Um, you know, Augustine recognized, say, yes, yes, this, we're like this. This is a problem that we have. Um, we have this, um, this weird desire to to do evil, right? Uh, um, even when we know better. Um, so the uh, Glaucon's case then is that, look, because, so his response to this is, well, see, this is actually how you are, is what you want is more and more, is endless sex and money and wealth, and you want to have, uh, um, have more than your neighbor. So if you, if you try to live justly, you're not going to be able to do that, right? You're going to have to restrict your desires. You're going to have to restrict your competitiveness. And so you're going to be less satisfied. So it's much better, you know, Glaucon says, go for it. Just let it all hang out. Just be clever and strategic about it. But just don't, don't, don't restrict your desire in the name of justice, and you will live a more satisfying life. And that does it for us here today, guys. <laughs> <laughs> On our episode about politics. Model, right? <laughs> yeah. No, but no, but seriously, like I mean, you 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 know, uh, it, it's almost like you know. So the you know ph- the Christian and the philosopher, you know, we read you know uh, 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 Plato's The Republic, and politician re- politicians read Glaucon's you know <laughs> the unjust life. You know, it, it's. <laughs> You know, like these, these are not new problems, you know? So, I mean, I think that's also something that, you know, Plato is, Plato gets at a lot is kind of every, a lot of the, a lot of these things go back to human nature, kind sure. of uh, back yeah. to the soul and mm-hmm. taking an honest look at uh, uh, the, you know, the, the desires of the human person and that they're not always, um, you know, um, uh, uh, virtuous, you know, and, and that was one thing that, you know, Plato would, would, he, you know, like this one, it's all about justice. So, I mean, he would bring up these ideas of, of virtue and that they actually uh, uh, work towards making you a happier person, uh, even if they are contrary uh, to, our, uh, to our natural desires. Um, 
which, you know, I, you know, on the, just on the, the, the surface, you know, I find that, you know, just amazing that, the, you know, they're able to do that, particularly without a Christian worldview, um, that mm-hmm. they're able to see, well, you know, even though I desire this, uh, uh, in the end, you know, I, I, I think what makes me happy is actually going against some of these desires. Sure, uh, yeah, you taming know. these things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, so and, to, and, and to see also, I mean, like, the, it, you know, the, the idea that, you know, especially Christians were against consumerism, you know, mm-hmm. it's not just a Christian idea. I mean, that go, it goes mm-hmm. back before the time of Christ. <laughs> right, sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, Plato gets a, a, a sort of notorious reputation uh, sometimes uh, because of the political views he espouses in the Republic. Yeah. But it's important to, to, to recognize that the political sort of arrangement that he uh, develops mm-hmm. uh, in the Republic is a response to this problem. So in, when, when Socrates, um, Socrates, you know, sort of admits Glaucon, you've made a pretty great case here, um, but I'm still going to try to argue that it's more desirable to be just, right? So we should try to be just. Um, and, uh, um, the way that, that Socrates or Plato through Socrates, uh, develops the city is really in a lot of ways to address the problem of Pleonexian. Um, and in fact, you know, he, um, he, he doesn't disagree, right? This is interesting. He doesn't disagree with that view. That is that, that is one of our, uh, maybe not our dominant, but at least one of our dominant desires, right? Yeah. Is to just have more yeah. and more satisfaction and to, to beat out our neighbors. So the, the political order, the political view that he develops is really uh, a response to the problem of Pleonexian, right? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, he, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he, he does this uh, of, of bringing up this idea of justice as saying, well, we need to look at it, you know, more in the society. So let's look at how justice operates within a society, not just in the individual man. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. He thinks. He thinks maybe we, uh, a good way to start would be to look at justice in the city. Yeah. And then we can move to thinking about justice in the soul. Um, so he he develops this view of the city. Uh, I won't go into all the details of it, but he he begins by talking about sort of why the cities develop, etc. Um, one really interesting thing is he is he is his first model of the city is often called by scholars the city of necessity, mm-hmm. and that is a, a form of so- social organization in which Primarily, we're organized around just getting what we need in order to live, right? Okay. So that the economy, the government, the laws are just organized around sort of survival, maybe a little bit prosperity, a little bit of moderate prosperity, that sort of thing. But his interlocutors challenge him and say, well, that doesn't sound like much fun. Um, <laughs> just having a society that's ordered towards, you know, just uh, uh, necessity, they say, well, what we need are couches and relishes, right? And we need... Um, flutes and we need entertainment and other sorts of things. And so um, uh, uh, Plato, you know, Socrates concedes, okay, fine. So we're going to have now a city that not only produces what is needed, but also luxury, right? That is, uh, we're going to not just pay attention to needs, but also to wants and satisfaction. Now that actually makes things kind of complicated, Socrates thinks, um, because, um, if we are going to uh, organize our social life around the fulfillment of desire and pleasure, that brings Pleonexian back into view, right? Yeah. And so what we're going to, uh, what's going to happen naturally is there is going to arise conflict from the desire for more and more. We're going to be competitive. 
and we're all going to want more and more, eventually I'm going to say, no, Jason, you can't have that third piece of pizza. That's mine, right? <laughs> it's my piece of pizza because I want more and more, right? And then we'll have conflict, okay? So uh, he says that, that once we've allowed luxury into the city, we're going to have conflict both within the city and between cities as people compete for resources and opportunities of self-satisfaction. Pretty realistic kind of view, I think. Yeah. Now, how does Glaucon uh, respond to this? How does oh, well, Glaucon actually uh, doesn't believe his own view. He wants Socrates to be right, right? He just yeah. sort of develops it so that they'll have this opportunity to have this conversation, which is an interesting, uh, I think, example of thinking philosophically. Um, uh, but uh, what Socrates says is that, um, um, I, and I think what Glaucon would say, an immoralist would say, um, to that, uh, or like say someone like Nietzsche is, yep, you're right, conflict, so be really strong. That's the solution, <laughs> right? Try to not be a loser yeah. uh, in the conflict for resources and satisfaction. Uh, of course, Socrates and Plato are not gonna take that view. Um, what, what, what Plato says is, well, okay, fine, uh, um, or Socrates on, on Plato's behalf, we're gonna need guardians then. So this is where the famous guardians come into the picture. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to um, uh, need people to come in who can uh, keep conflict in the city down and also uh, defeat those who are going to try to take from our city, right? And so he, by guardians, he basically really just means, you know, warriors, soldiers, fighters. Um, and then, and then uh, uh, from this group, most of us aren't going to be guardians in his view. Most of us are going to be workers. Um, uh, those whose lives are organized around consumption and production and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. um, the guardians actually, interestingly, uh, they're going to be in charge of the society, um, but they're not, uh, but not for their own sake. It's really interesting. He, his whole view of this is he really, he sets up a, a view where he says, well, what we need are guardians who love the city more than themselves. Right. So um, he's going to deny to the guardians private property. Uh, he's going to say they, they don't get to choose. They have their own houses. They live in barracks, basically. Um, they're provided for, um, but like soldiers, um, so that they are, uh, they don't live a luxurious life at all. Um, there's, he compares the guardians to, uh, an excellent guard dog, right? So that a guard dog needs to be able to have a certain amount of ferocity, right? To be able to defend but also gentleness, enough discipline to not bite the family members, right? <laughs> you know, so you, you, you need a, a certain amount of discipline and gentleness. Um, and uh, in addition to that, there has to be a great love of the city more than self. Um, and he develops a whole view of education about, uh, about how to bring this about. Uh, and then finally, and most importantly, there needs to be the ability in the guardians to distinguish the difference between what is really beneficial and what is really harmful, and he calls that wisdom. Oh, okay. There, there comes the uh, uh, the philosopher out in the uh, the guardians. <laughs> now, now when now when you're talking about the guardians, do, does each one play uh, play the exact same role, or mm -hmm. you know, can can we draw more meaning out of these guardians? Uh, sure. By their the baseline is that the guardians are. Um, are soldiers, they're fighters, they're professional soldiers. Mm -hmm. Now this is interesting actually because um, in ancient Greece, there was only one other, there was only one city-state that had professional soldiers and that was Sparta. Sparta. Uh, the, their whole uh, society was organized around supporting these uh, men 
whose only job was to fight, right? Um, most Athenian, uh, sorry, most Greek city-states had citizen soldiers. That is, all of the adult property-owning men were expected, you know, I think up to the age of 65, um, to take up their shield, take up their spear and helmet, and go out once a year and fight the neighbors, right? So um, the, the wars didn't last very long. They usually lasted like a couple of days, uh, and then everybody had to go back and farm. But um, uh, usually it was a citizen-soldier situation. The uh, Plato rejects that model and thinks, no, they need, we need to have professionals who are trained, and this is what they do, right? Now, out of that group, he takes those who have the greatest capacity for um, uh, wisdom and for love of the city, right? Uh, so out of the group of soldiers, he takes the wisest and the most devoted and says they should be uh, the rulers, uh, sometimes referred to as philosopher kings, right? So this would be your notorious, you know, uh, we need a city run by philosopher kings. Now, it's really important to understand what Plato's up to here, right? In his view, what we the problem is Plainexian, right? That desire for more and more in competition. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want that to rule the city, right? Because that just creates conflict, right? Self-destruction. Instead, what he wants to rule the city is wisdom, right? So in his view, right, the, the, the idea is, should we have a city that's organized around the rule of wisdom or the rule of desire and competition? Yeah, and even in the, the, the rule of wisdom, when you're talking about... Um, uh, particularly the, the the guardians, it's mm-hmm. not ju- you know you. This is where I think uh, uh, also when you're when you're when you're talking about the organization of a society, as soon as you start talking about these guardians, you know this is where I mean it's just uh, selfless virtue mm-hmm. comes mm-hmm. comes into play. I mean it's it's the complete opposite of you know of what Glaucon was uh, arguing for, you sure. know. Uh, this comp- and the behavior of many politicians in the real world, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a frightening thing. Yeah, so, it's, uh, uh, but 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 so I mean, like to have to have wisdom rule the society. The other virtues are are, are the guardians. I mean, this can really you can really you can really see how this begins to take uh, uh, very much an analogous kind of sense when we start looking at the human person. Obviously, sure, absolutely, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's going to move there, right? Yeah, and talk about you know the the idea that um, that the city and the soul have a lot of similarity to each other. Um, but one thing I think before before we move over to, to talking about that, one thing that's that's worth just sort of thinking about. Again, philosophy is a lot about just thinking, right? So mm-hmm. um, the uh, Plato, once you think about this, um, this should sort of you know to to those who are listening to this. This should sort of sound a little like, wait a second, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this, right? <laughs> if you're uncomfortable, I, I'm not surprised, right? You should be a little uncomfortable because this is not democratic at all, right? The, 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 he is not interested in uh, everybody getting a vote. In fact, his idea is he would think that that's crazy, right? In fact, he does think it's crazy, right? And why is that? Well, one thing you could ask yourself is, um, it's, you know, this is just food for thought, but um, do you know people who do a poor job at running their own lives? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like a lot, right? So what do we do in, in, in a democracy? We let everyone vote regardless of, the, of whether they're wise, they're virtuous, they're temperate, they're just, etc. We let these people, many people vote 
and pick our leaders who can't run their own lives? Is it any <laughs> wonder that we end up with politicians who are so crazy? No comment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's, that's good food for thought, you know? Yeah. And, and, and not, uh, yeah. And, and that's the thing It's you know, uh, uh, Socrates or Plato through Socrates in this, you know, he, he even talks about democracy as unjust. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Uh, along with, <laughs> along with, you know, other, and now, now, you know, for all our listeners, he does, you know, uh, uh, also, you know, condemn, you know, things like tyranny and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, oligarchy and things like that. So, I mean, he doesn't, it's not just this, this bashing of democracy, but I think it does show realistically, mm-hmm. you know, a, uh, um, uh, an issue with uh, with democracy that can have sure. horrible effects. You know, I mean, uh, a part of, you know, uh, I have five kids. You know, uh, if we mm-hmm. lived in a democracy, uh, <laughs> it would be insane because we are outnumbered uh, by right. small, stupid little little people. That's uh, right. Who are lovely and we love them, but yes, nevertheless, yes, we love them. Never, nevertheless, they're 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 very immature. And if we gave and if their vote counted as much as my, as mine did, well, uh, I would hate to see what what that would be like. Uh, Absolutely. You know, yeah. So, so yeah, I tell so, I tell my children uh, occasionally that they, they, they'll they'll actually bring out well maybe we should have a vote. I say no 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 no. This is not <laughs> a democracy, right? This is a monarchy, and Dad is the monarch. That's right. Uh, I, I say, I'll I'll listen to you. You you can make some suggestions, but we are not voting on this. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if yeah. your kids have trouble falling asleep, just read them the Republic. You can read. <laughs> that's right. Let's get the right ideas. Right? That's right. Let's uh, one other thing that uh, sometimes students bring up about this, and then we can move on and talk about the soul. But yeah, uh, I've had I've had people uh, students ask me, well, how would you get any, first? How would you get anyone to be a guardian? Because it is an austere life. Like again, it's a, it's a basically a military life um, yeah. with with very little luxury. Um, uh, he does allow the begetting of children, so forth. That's a complicated matter in the republic. But it's it's not at all about the guardians having a, a nice, soft, or luxurious life. So how would you get anybody to do it? And and I had a student recently bring this up. And she asked, well, uh, very often people will only do something because of the financial reward. So if there's no financial reward who would you get to be the guardians? There's a variety of ways to answer that. But one thing for sure that Clay would say, if your primary motivation is financial reward, then you're not fit to be a guardian. Yeah. You're not the kind of person that I want in charge of the city. Right. Um, Now, one interesting thing um, um, uh, for a variety of uh, uh, sort of personal and family circumstances, I've had the opportunity uh, to occasionally uh, visit Annapolis uh, and to uh, visit the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. And there you have a whole lot of people who are clearly, like the midshipmen there, are clearly not motivated by financial reward. <laughs> They're motivated by something else. They they volunteer. Most of them are, are wicked smart, but, they're, uh, but um, they volunteer for this very austere, demanding uh, lifestyle, right? And one that even could involve uh, their own deaths, right, at some point. Um, so there are people like that, right? And, and to Glaucon's, I mean, sorry, to, to Socrates' mind or, or Plato's, like, well, that's the kind of spirit that we want sort of in our leaders. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, uh, uh, having several friends that uh, joined the military and everything uh, uh, and served and, you know, uh, many of them, you know, joined out of one or another virtue, whether it be uh, um, just, you know, 
uh, patriotism or love of the city, uh, right? Love, yeah. Of the, right. Yeah. Or even, or even, you know, uh, uh, loyalty, honor, all of these, you know, all of these vir- virtues that again would be good for the guardian of a city, you know, so, I mean, they do exist and, uh, um, you know, many of them, you know, I know, you know, even though they go through, uh, uh, tough times and hard, hard things to, um, uh, to live through, uh, um, they see a very fulfilling life uh, many times in those uh, in that just mm-hmm. in that virtuous living, uh, uh, how whatever form. Sure. That yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's really yeah. interesting, you know. And and I think it's one of those things where you know, like, <clears throat> to some degree, you know, we all have to be that kind of uh, guardian with whatever uh, has been placed in our care, you know. Sure. Yeah. We, yeah. Have, to, we have to model those virtues in that way. Yeah, in our own lives. And, and, and Plato is very concerned with that. Um, uh, and so he, he transitions from talking about the political community as a whole mm-hmm. to talking about uh, the soul of each individual. And so he has this interesting claim, uh, and, th- and this is interesting both anthropologically as well as politically, that uh, the, uh, the city is the soul writ large, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is that that our city, right, our political community, when I say city, I just mean the political community, whatever size it is, sure, is a representation of our own souls, right? Uh, which is scary in a number of ways, right? If you think about the political state of the United States of America, he's saying, well, that's a, that's a, that's a, a sign of a representation <laughs> of the way our American souls are. Oh, dear um, Lord. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Oh, dear Lord. Right. Um, so, he thinks, though, that, that then because of this connection between the city and the soul, that what's true of the city, we can also say is true of the soul. And right. so in the, in the ideal city, right, uh, we have uh, the philosopher kings at the top. Right below them, we have the, the regular guardians uh, who are still, you know, good soldiers and so forth. They're not the wisest, but, uh, but they still have some wisdom. And then below them, we have the workers, right? And the workers are primarily concerned with uh, pursuit of satisfaction and so forth. Now, very importantly, in this city, because it's ruled by wisdom, and this is the, the, the assumption you have to just sort of stipulate, because it's ruled by wisdom, that is the idea of the philosopher kings really are wise, right? And they really do love the city more than themselves. Mm-hmm. So they are ruling the city for everyone's good, right? Right. So it's actually beneficial to everyone involved, including most of us who would belong in the work, in, in the class of workers, the group of workers. Um, they're, they still have play in and they primarily live by desire, but now their desire is tempered by the rule of wisdom, right? Um, and so what we find is the, uh, something very uh, similar happening in the soul. He thinks that within the soul, right, we also have three parts. We have a part of us that is the desiring part, the part of us that wants uh, food and fame and pleasure and sex and wealth. Then we also have that part of us that loves honor, that loves loyalty, that desires um, praise for noble deeds, uh, that desires to overcome difficulties. That's called uh, thumos, which is the spirited part of the soul. Mm-hmm. And then above that, uh, we also have the thinking part of the soul. So that we, we find that three-part division even within the soul. And he thinks just as in the just city where, you know, it's just as consistent in the rule of wisdom because wisdom deserves to rule, right? Uh, why does it deserve to rule? Because wisdom knows the difference between what is really beneficial and what's really harmful. We need to have the same situation in our own souls, right? That is 
we, we can be democracies in our souls, right? That is, we can just let all of our desires run free, just satisfy whatever desire whenever we feel like it, right? Uh, or we can instead reject a kind of um, spiritual democracy and opt for uh, the rule of wisdom, right? So in this case, um, the, in the soul uh, of the individual, right? What you want to rule is wisdom. You want thumos or the spirited part, the honor loving part to obey wisdom and to enforce on the appetites, right? Our desires um, for satisfaction, um, uh, the rule of wisdom, the guidance of wisdom. That doesn't mean we won't have any pleasure or satisfaction, but it needs to be again, tempered by, uh, uh, by uh, both the, the ruling, uh, sorry, the, the wise part of us, the wisdom within us, as well as um, our, our spirited part. Yeah, we can see this even with kind of just, uh, if you've ever gone to like spiritual direction, you know, sure. uh, a lot of times the first thing that the, uh, uh, the priest or the person will tell you is you need a good guide. Uh, mm-hmm. besides, mm-hmm. My, besides me or somebody like that, they'll say, you know, uh, uh, find a saint. But, you know, and again, pointing to the virtues of the saint, but they'll say, you know, find this person, you know, who is wise in the spiritual things and, mm-hmm. and imitate them, you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, even in the, in the uh, Catholic spiritual life, we seek, you know, kind of the same kind of uh, philosopher King to, uh, mm-hmm. and, and again, when the, 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 the interesting thing, cause like you said, you know, it sounds kind of like oppressive, like, Oh, I don't want just this philosopher king ruling over all parts of society. (laughs) But if if you understand that philosopher king, you know, as, you know, uh, uh, as one of the great saints, you Mm -hmm. know, you just say, you know, uh, intercede for me, inform every part of my being. uh, uh, Sure. uh, You know, and so we, we literally, you know, almost in a way, you know, make our, make ourselves uh, uh, slaves uh, to these to these great saints uh, for but we know because uh, uh, of their uh, spiritual progress and their spiritual uh, holiness that uh, sure. that we will that they will not lead us astray and I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the the somewhat utopian kind of view that uh, Plato's taking here with with sure. regards to the philosopher king it's not this yeah kind of yeah so yeah, sure. yeah and he recognizes of course that that this is highly unlikely right to actually develop as a political yeah. Them, right but at the same time he says look it's the best it what is what makes the most sense uh now there's a variety of ways to contest this and aristotle brings in some interesting criticisms but nevertheless i think you have to sort of like you, you have to give it its due i mean it's an interesting view certainly of political life but also of the soul right um mm-hmm. uh, and many spiritual writers you know point to the fact that very often what we have in our soul is kind of a civil war um and that uh you know um, the, the, the appetites and the desires really have to be um, uh, tamed. I was listening to something on the radio today. I don't remember who was speaking. Uh, it was a, a preacher. It was a, a Protestant minister. But he was bringing up an example that was really interesting, uh, I thought. He said, uh, contrary to the way we normally speak, that, that um, our default status is to be juvenile delinquents. Uh, <laughs> I thought, what an interesting claim, right? And his point was, you know, as much as we love our children, we love babies and, and so forth, um, the truth is they're terribly selfish um, uh, by their own, they, like they want what they want right now, right? Yeah. What you have to do is you have to teach them, right? Now, of course, they're also capable of wonderful, spontaneous uh, kindness and, 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 
and joy, which is uh, wonderful too. But you do actually have to train them not to be selfish, right? Uh, and so uh, similarly, you know, Plato would say you really have to train yourself through your education and through your disciplines um, to uh, not suppress your desires, but to, to, to order them, to give them a, a shape, a shape that they don't know themselves, a shape that is really known by wisdom. Now, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that, you know, like, you know, that, that idea I think is, is huge when it, especially when it comes to kind of a lot of times, you know, uh, a misconception that people will have about Catholic uh, spirituality or even, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, human sexuality is that, oh, you Catholics, you just repress those things or, sure. you know, right. you Thomists, you really don't care about the emotions and all these things. And it's mm -hmm. like, no, but they, you know, it's, it's important that we, that we don't, repress or oppress these things but th that we place them in the right order and that's what wisdom does is that you that's know temperance you know they that mm -hmm. uh they they really place these things uh in in the correct order uh, uh and again it, it it comes through you know our ability to to reason to recognize mm -hmm. what is the highest good uh, mm -hmm. uh, and to have that uh ability yeah yeah i mean the restrictions are ultimately there right uh, for the sake of enjoying the desire well and in a beneficial way, right? So you take uh, for uh, what's most, uh, you know, sort of comes to, to the to mind, I think in America, um, especially you think about, you know, sort of money and sex and, you know, um, our desire for wealth, <laughs> right? Yeah. And our desire uh, for, for sexual satisfaction, uh, neither of those things is necessarily bad uh, but they need to be ordered wisely, right? And and wisdom is going to tell us sometimes, no, you shouldn't take that promotion. No, you know, uh, your your heedless uh, pursuit of wealth is not actually good uh, for you, right? Um, and for and for your soul. And then, of course, you could say the same thing uh, with sex. Now, of course, the the real sort of uh, what you could consider the weak point here. In this view, and I think there's a lot that's compelling about it, both both politically as well as individually and spiritually, um, <laughs> is the question of wisdom, right? That yeah. is, um, so who's got it? How do you get it? What is it, right? I mean, this whole approach, which I think in a lot of ways is quite compelling, um, it, it is based on the the assumption, the belief that we can become wise. Um, and that we can follow a path of wisdom. So uh, Plato recognizes that. And of course the dialogue moves into a discussion of what is wisdom and how do you get it? Uh, and this moves us into some of the, the sort of the, the more difficult and technical parts of, uh, uh, of the Republic in the middle parts, right? We're looking at really uh, book uh, six, uh, book six and seven, where you get a lot of the sort of famous and, and somewhat difficult uh, ideas about uh, what's called the theory of the forms, um, right. divided line, um, the uh, two worlds theory, things of that nature. Now, uh, those are great ideas, and in the right setting, it's a, it's a, it's good to sort of delve into them. I'm going to only say just a, a kind of a, a few, like a just few kind of very broad things about them. And then I want to talk about the allegory of the cave because that's where these things really kind of come together. I think. Uh, more clearly, but uh, what um, uh, what he thinks about wisdom is that in order to be wise, there need to be absolute standards. 
this is what we call the for, uh, this is what it has come to be called the forms, right? right? That is these ideas that are unchanging, immutable, perfect, and universal, right? Mm-hmm. And that one that if we can if somebody can come to know those things, right, then they can be wise. So if you know um, what is just in itself, justice in itself, right? Um, uh, what's just universally, absolutely, uh, unchangingly, then you can make some definite judgments about what you should or should not do. Does that make sense? Right. right? So right, right. Um, uh, the, the theory of the forms is really a theory about there being some absolute, universal, unchanging standards. Now, I won't get to give you all the arguments about how he tries to show this, but it, it, it makes some intuitive sense. Sure. Um, and that, the, that this has to be, um, these standards have to be outside, though. If they're going to be unchanging, they have to be outside the world of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they can't be within the world of change. That is the ordinary reality that we normally encounter. This opens up a huge, interesting uh, metaphysical view and interpretation of reality, right? We say, well, there must be another level of reality, right? right. The world uh, of universals, right? Yeah. That's right, the world of universals. And th- I mean, I admit this gets to be pretty weird stuff, but you can also see why um, this was so attractive to early Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, if you, if you sort of think about a lot of the early fathers, really, they, they, the kind of philosophy that they knew about was Platonic philosophy. And, uh, and they found this um, very um, appealing in some ways. And so you can find, uh, say, the Cappadocian Fathers, uh, you can find uh, St. Augustine and others using Platonic-sounding ideas uh, in their discussions. Of course, for a Christian, when you start thinking about the absolute standards, those are the standards in the mind of God, right? right. Of God, the wisdom of God, those sorts of things, right? Now, Plato doesn't go there, but you can see how a Christian using Platonism might might think that way. Sure, sure. Um, so, um, uh, again, there's a lot of details you know, I'm leaving out, uh, but that's the general picture of both what is wisdom. The wise man is one who knows these absolute standards um, and, uh, and why there needs to be this other reality, this underchanging reality, because that's where, so to speak, the um, absolute standards exist. All this is brought together beautifully in the allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, I just want to say a couple of things about that. Um, rec- I recommend to our uh, listeners, uh, if you just uh, Google the allegory of the cave, you'll, you'll find a bunch of diagrams of it, right? That, that help you to sort of see what he's talking about. But basically he says that, that finding wisdom is very hard. And that's because of the situation in which we find ourselves. And he compares it to people uh, compares our, our, our sort of default position to people who are chained in a chair in the bottom of a cave and they've never known anything else and all they see are shadows on the wall that are cast by basically puppeteers who stand uh, uh, behind them and above them. And there's also a fire behind them. So you get the kind of uh, the image here, right? Mm-hmm. You've got a source of light, an artificial source of light puppeteers in front of that in front of them you have uh people chained to a chair but all they see is the wall on which the shadows exist and that's a kind of uh kind of grim picture (laughs) of the default position right um uh um but he thinks that on our normal everyday lives 
what we really what, what we tend to perceive and experience and think about are really shadows and shadows of puppets so not even not even shadows of a real thing right so that we're we're two times removed from reality now you might ask yourself um uh, i mean you 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 jason you've you've read this or or oh yeah absolutely it. Yeah, I've watched The Matrix too. So if anybody does, <laughs> right, right. Um, so, uh, like when when you, you're talking about the 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 cave, one thing that comes out uh, that that should come up to you, a question that should come up to you, this allegory, is who are the puppeteers? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any guesses, Jason? Well, let's see. I could put on many hats right now, but <laughs> you know, my American. You know, I could put on my. Uh, uh, you know urban american hat i would say well it's the corporations right mm -hmm. yeah it's the the people that can that are, are controlling uh the things that i like and the things that i consume and so sure. they're constantly putting those things out in front of me right. uh, to distract me from from those things that are really real that's right yeah i think that um uh, that is very much in line with what Plato actually thinks here. In yeah. fact, if Plato knew about the kind of technology we have with TV, like flickering lights, on a <laughs> screen, right? You know, he would be uh, horrified. He would just say, "Well, see, I was right completely." Like it's getting worse. Yeah. Right? Um, or like a dude, a dude sitting in his base in his dark basement, staring at a screen. Like, that's, right. that's pretty much you're in a cave already. Like that's right, exactly. You're living exactly. the dream, buddy. Like <laughs> that's right. So uh, what he thinks is. Um, the, the, there's good reasons to think that what he's talking about is the puppeteers are the rhetoricians. Uh, yeah. And I think in a, in, a, in a modern setting, what we could think of them as, as, as sort of two forms, certainly politicians, um, but then also uh, what you talked about, advertising, uh, right? That is the, the people who manipulate um, uh, social media, who manipulate um, uh, media in general, right? And yeah. so um, these people aren't interested in the truth. Uh, these people uh, in the, in the city ruled by Planexian, which is the default position. He thinks unless you live in a city ruled by wisdom, you live in a city that's ruled by desire. Mm -hmm. And what they're interested in is controlling you, getting power from you, and making money from you. Uh, and so that what you see are shadows, and that the life in the city, for the most part, uh, is that life of shadows. Uh, it's a kind of a grim critique, but again, I think you got to grant that there's something to it, right? Yeah, well, especially when you uh, when you go back to, uh, you know, Plato's idea that the city is kind of an expression of the soul or the mm -hmm. soul writ large. Uh, uh, when you look at it that way as well, you know, I mean, it's at least for us, you know, it it is true. I mean, you know, you know, even, you know, what was it? The uh, uh, Chesterton quote that, you know, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Sure. They're looking for something else. But uh <laughs> Uh, sure. um, but it, but it is one of those things where, you know, we are looking for that fulfillment and that happiness. Um, but we're not looking in the right places for it sure. mm -hmm. uh, or we're settled, we're settling for mere occasions of pleasure, sure. uh, outside of that, you know, so, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, a new shadow on the wall, uh, right. you know, is more appealing than finding out what is it, it. And it's actually easier. And I think this is where we get into kind of the modern struggle. It's easier just to, just to get excited and, Oh, I wonder what the next shadow will be sure. as yeah, opposed right. to saying, as opposed to, you know, being a little bit introspective and say, well, what is, what's causing the shadows? 
Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And what, one of the things that uh, makes it especially difficult, right, is most people in our societies, in our cities, in Plato's view, uh, this may be true of the United States of America, but true of any city, really, um, think the shadows are real. Right. Yeah. And so what we're, we're all of my friends, all of my colleagues, right, are also all invested in these shadows. And he says that uh, in the cave, this is a really, it's actually pretty funny. He's having some fun. But he says uh, what they'll do in the, in the cave, the people in the chairs who are locked in, they'll, they'll have competitions about uh, guessing which shadow will come next. Yeah. Right? And the person who's best at guessing the order of the shadows will get a prize and he'll be honored and praised and all that sort of thing. Right. And Plato's saying, this is what your life is usually about, right? You are celebrating, striving and competing for things that actually are twice removed from reality. Right. You, yeah. you, you don't, you're not even close to what's really praiseworthy, what's really desirable, those sorts of things. Right. You're just being manipulated by people who want to make money from you and people who want to control you. Now, of course, they're also deceived as well. Right. They're still down in the cave. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you might ask yourself, of course, like, whoa, man, this is really severe. How do you get out of it? Yeah. Um, and uh, Plato has a lot to say about that. Um, but uh, but he, he's very clear that it's not easy. He thinks it's hard. Um, and, and I think that's true, uh, in a way, like if you think of trying to get outside of the images that, uh, of goodness, the images of what's desirable that are broadcast to us all the time that are communicated to us all the time, it, it's hard, right? To get out of that, especially when everybody around you thinks these things are so important. Yeah. Um, but, uh, he thinks it's hard, but not impossible. And he says what has to happen. I think this is so fascinating is that somebody has to come in from outside of the cave, right? There has to be someone outside the cave who comes in, right? And breaks the bonds of the person who is chained in the, in the, in the chair. And he says, he literally says, drags the guy out of the cave because the guy doesn't, doesn't want to leave. leave. <laughs> right. And that's, that's the reality. He knows. He's like, are you crazy? The outside? What are you talking about? Like, it sounds like some sort of myth. There's a great scene in, I believe it's um, the Silver Chair, uh, yeah. Chronicles of Narnia, right? Where uh, uh, there's a, a, a witch who um, keeps these people uh, sort of uh, oppressed in this underground dwelling, this underground kingdom. And she's always like, the sun? What is the sun? It's just some sort of myth, right? So like there's no, like the idea of there even being an outside world, she, she, she subverts. And this is the case for, for everybody who's in the cave is they, we, we don't really know, right? We're so used to the images that we can't, we think that they're reality, right? Uh, but they're not. So somebody has to actually come break us out and drag us out. And as you're being dragged out of the cave, actually your eyes are going to not be able to see well, right? Have you ever been like in a dark space and you come into the sun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they yeah, hurt. You, yeah, they literally they hurt. hurt. Yeah. yeah, and you can't see well. And so you're not going to like it. You're not going to see well at first and everything's going to be kind of murky eventually once you're drug out of the cave your eyes will adjust you'll be able to see the real things mm -hmm. right and even experience uh, right the the light that is the sun this is a powerful image i think of and you can uh, also see, you can see why christians pick this up oh, oh yeah i mean the fact that somebody has to come in and break the bonds like you know like <laughs> it was so close <laughs> it sounds like revelation it sounds like incarnation right i mean yeah or at least it's something similar to, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, but I mean, you can see how the 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 Christians would easily would easily pick this up and be able to use it, you know, 
um, uh, in, uh, uh, in their own explanations, but also, like you said, you know, kind of that beginning of that, or that kind of, kind of preliminary idea of original sin. Uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting uh, in, the, in that way. And so once the person's brought outside, then they see both the real things, what's really desirable, and can enjoy a real human life, right? Yeah. And of course, they come to regard the life back in a cave, right, as, as, as pathetic and, and pitiful, uh, because these people's lives revolve around shadows, you know? Uh, and I think that's just a, a compelling view of the life without wisdom. And that's what he's really describing there is a life yeah. that's ruled by desire and competition rather than the life that's ruled by wisdom. Um, and what, you know, one thing, uh, you know, and you've already indicated this and we can maybe wrap up and thinking about this, but, uh, you know, who is it that comes in from outside, right? Who's the person yeah. who invades the cave? Um, and you know, there's a variety of things that you can say here. Uh, but one thing, uh, from, from what Plato says in some other parts of the Republic, he, uh, when he's asking about how could the city possibly get started, right? Yeah. And he, and he basically says, um, well, maybe there's a couple of different ways, but they're highly unlikely. He says, one probable way is that the God intervenes and just makes it happen. Makes it be the case that there be one wise man right? That's what you need, right? Is you need the one wise man who's willing, this is the really tough, to go back down into the cave yeah. and pull people out, right? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an interesting view. I, I'm not trying at all to pretend that, that Plato had a full view of Revelation or anything like that, but he had some inkling of the idea that, that there needed to be something from outside of this, our normal world, our ordinary life that comes in and brings about the wise man. Now, in his own case, I have no doubt that Plato was referring to Socrates. He believed that Socrates was the wise man. Right. Really interestingly, uh, what happened to Socrates? Yeah, he got killed. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Socrates was killed by Athens, his own city, right? So he's showing you, like, here's the wise man. He's yeah. helped Plato and his other colleagues and friends start to come out of the cave. But the truth is, the city doesn't want you to get out of the cave. Right, because it's not the city that Plato was talking about. That's right, exactly, exactly. Uh, and and that there's a, there's a sort of lethal opposition of the city ruled by desire and competition uh, and wisdom. Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, the... the the philosopher king has not ruled yet is because we <laughs> simply kill them <laughs> as soon as one try. I mean, and I think that's why philosophy students don't run for political office that's right. yeah. because we they will that. be killed. Right? <laughs> it's the first, first uh, inkling of wisdom is, Oh, that I do. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm going to do something else. So <laughs> that's awesome. All right, guys. Well, that does it for us uh, uh, today at uh, take care every thought captive. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to invite you to uh, join us at catholicstudiesacademy.com. Check us out. Uh, Check out our courses. Uh, Check out also we have uh, other podcasts up there. We have blog articles. We have all kinds of content uh, up there. You can learn more about uh, our lecturers. Uh, Check us out at catholicstudiesacademy.com. Until next time, God bless.